EST is sponsored by Pastor Talk by Lifeway. Join host Marty Dern as he interviews pastors, professors, authors, and other ministry practitioners. Pastor Talk gives you tools and encouragement to shepherd your flock well. Subscribe to Pastor Talk in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher or listen online at lifewaypastors.com. Hi, and welcome to EST. If you love the established church, this is the place to have conversations about why the established church matters, how to better serve her, and to hear stories every week about how God is using the church for His glory and our good. The show is hosted each week by Sam Rayner, Josh King, and Micah Fries. We're glad you're here. Hi, friends, and welcome to this week's episode of EST. My name is Micah Fries. I am in the studio with my good buddy, uh, Keith Whitfield, who is uh, the assistant professor of theology, dean of graduate studies, vice president for academic administration, and uh, and all of those things at uh, Southeastern Seminary. He is married to Amy. They've got a couple of children. Amy, his wife, is the director of communications here at uh, at Southeastern, and uh, I'm, I'm thankful Keith is uh, hanging out with us in the studio today so that we can think through, as a pastor, how do you help train your people theologically? How do you develop them, both formally and informally? We're going to talk through all of that, but before we do, Keith, how are you, man? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, having me on the podcast. Yeah, man. And uh, Amy is our director of communications, and they keep me around. Um, because to she's support around. her. Yeah. <laughs> I actually believe that, as a matter of fact. <laughs> you say you're doing well, but you're wearing your Clemson hat, man. Uh, I love my Clemson hat. Mm-hmm. I'm proud of my Tigers. Um, in spite of the fact that they lost again at Chapel Hill this week. That's right. Uh, we have a long drought there at Chapel Hill. Like, How long is that drought exactly? It uh, extends uh, nine decades. It's, uh, <laughs> I think, 59 and zero. So you and I have grandparents who have not been around that long. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. I went to the game. Um, it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. You know, we, 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 we rallied at the end. Yep. It looked like there was a chance. Yep. Uh, but I think they just have a hold uh, over us there in that And you uh, took city. a North Carolina fan with you. I did. And he I did. was kind? He, he was kind. That's because he's a Ph.D. student and you're the dean. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, I had to be kind, too, because the North Carolina fan uh, gave me the tickets. Ah, uh, okay. So, yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So. Well, we're going to talk theological education, the local church. Um, you know, we're seeing a renaissance of churches interested in doing formal processes, processes of the, theological education. Mm-hmm. I think we're seeing a renaissance of pastors interested in being a pastor theologian, you know, uh, which, is, which is a sort of a concept that has uh, risen back to prominence. But let's, let's just begin at a fundamental level. Um, how often should a pastor think – and before I say this, let me say, Keith, you've been a pastor. You pastored in Virginia, yep. um, and you've served as a, on a pastoral team here in North Carolina as an elder pastor at a church. Um, so you have experience in the pastoral field as well as serving in the academic side. In fact, you were a pastor before you became uh, someone in the academic world. So let's – how often should a pastor think intentionally about the theological development of their people and um, – in particular, in contrast to what I grew up in, where I, I never really heard of—I mean, I, I never heard anyone, not in the church world, talk about theology. I mean, we had Bible studies, we had preaching, but theological formation was just not a topic we thought about, or at least I never heard about as a kid growing up. So how often should a pastor think about the theological formation of their people? Well, I'm going to say something, and I don't even want to walk it back too much, uh, but it's going to sound a bit hyper, hyperbolic, but uh, every minute they're awake. 
every minute that they're away. You're going to make me feel awful, man. I, mean, every, I think I about mean, the Packers, Royals, and Gators a lot, man. Well, let's say every minute they're engaged in the pastoral task. Okay. Because the pastoral um, responsibility is a theological responsibility. So help me understand how um, visiting a shut-in in their home or eating dinner at a fellowship dinner is a theological task. Um, I, we are involved in one another's lives for uh, many, many reasons. Central to those reasons is the formation of Christ in our lives, mm-hmm. um, and that's a theological task. So what you're saying is that theology is not an academic discipline as much as it is the Christian life. Uh, that's exactly right. Theology is understanding God and his work in the world and how all things relate to him. So a pastor who never thinks about the phrase, you know, how am I training my people theologically, but does Bible studies and preaches sermons are they two two sides to this question number one are they training their people theologically secondly if you answer that yes which i'm guessing you will answer that question yes are they training their people theologically well Uh, they are training their their people theologically and i don't know if they're training their people theologically well because i don't know the content of their preaching i don't know the um the type of leadership they 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 model i don't know how they um put opportunities in front of their people and help their people to see these opportunities in light of God and, and what he's doing in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know these things, right. uh, but that could be all that a pastor does right? and be training his people theologically. So the pastor, when they preach, they're preaching theology. When they pray, they're praying theology. When we sing, we're singing theology. Do you think it's a fair assessment to say there is a large number of pastors and church leaders who don't think intentionally about the theology, the formation, or the well-formed theology behind what they're preaching, praying, singing? Absolutely. Okay. Why does that matter? Uh, it matters because we're trying to form people. And if we believe that people are formed in a very specific way for a very specific aim, okay. then it matters for us to think about that. That's that's the task of the, of the pastor. The task of the pastor is to form a a people, right? Um, to be to give his life as a service to shepherd a people so that they might be conformed to the image of Christ, um, and that work is done in a particular way. Sure, um, it's there's a there's content there, and the content is gospel type co- is content. Um, the Spirit is at work in it, and the Scriptures reveal the ways that He transforms. Uh, that God transformed his people, uh, and we've got to make sure that we are, have our ministries in alignment with those things. So theology matters for pastors and people. In what ways can a pastor train their people well theologically? How do we go about that task? Uh, so I think it starts in the pulpit okay. um, because the pulpit then provides uh, hooks or handles for other types of conversations and leadership, um, it's not because everything that needs to be said and everything that happens needs to happen and happens in the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you come down from the pulpit and you are talking to people in the hall, or you are called to the hospital because something tragic has happened in someone's life, or you're trying to help someone think through a, a life decision, or you're just wanting to be a source of encouragement to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, what they hear from you um, in the pulpit provides a way for you to build off of of um, you know of of that uh, content in the in the pulpit in other pastoral uh, opportunities 
And so it provides the it really the central point of pastoral ministry. Um, and so what I like to call, tell, call people to is what I, I call theological exposition of Scripture. Okay. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, uh, yes, we're teaching the Bible. We're not just teaching what words mean and what uh, things meant to the original audience. We're not just we're not just teaching uh, what we see as potential practical applications of what people ought to do in response to it. We're trying to help people see the divine. I'm going to use a big word: divine logic of the biblical text. That is what. This text reveals about who God is and how he's working in the world and how he wants his people to participate in it um, and what theological truths about uh, how God is working in the world are being revealed in the text and that what the text is teaching are tied to and you help your people see those things and ground their lives in those things. Um, so what you're saying is that scripture strings together. It's, it's not a it's not a collection of independent thoughts and concepts, but and that, that by teaching your people theologically, you're helping them put the whole of scripture together. Yes, and there are bedrock concepts in scripture, like the character of God, um, like the centrality of uh, the person and work of Christ, like the doctrine of sin. Uh, God's covenant faithfulness to his people. There are these bedrock foundational truths in Scripture that provide a way of seeing the world. Um, And the exposition of Scripture needs to make sure that it's continuing to to develop a biblical understanding of these bedrock truths. It's a framework for seeing the world is what you're doing is helping form that. So – Let's think a little bit about how pastors can do this beyond the pulpit. And I agree with you about the pulpit. Don Whitney, who's a professor at Southern Seminary, used to be my professor at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City. Uh, I remember sitting in class one day and hearing him say, all Reformation begins with teaching. He wasn't talking about big R Reformation. He was just talking about transitions, changes in churches. All Reformation begins with teaching. So I, I cede that point. I agree with you on that. Outside of the pulpit, how can we help develop our people theologically? I think the way you lead your people um, and the opportunities you put in front of your people, the why, the why behind the opportunity, um, why would we choose to invest our time and our resources, our energies, and call you and try to mobilize you to be a part of these things? That's theological. Um, I think uh, spending time with people um, in the community, spending time with people in um, – and in doing hobbies like hunting and fishing and riding your bike and these types of things um, and because the opportunities of conversation come up about life that then you can find ways to disciple even as people are going and they don't even know they're being discipled. Um, you know, the, the development of leaders, um, equipping leaders who can expand the theological vision or expand the ministry vision of of um, of the church into places that you can't go, you, need, you know, you need to be doing that. Um, and then there's these opportunities um, to teach, not from the pulpit, but teach maybe from the classroom or teach from the living room. Um, and you look for opportunities to do that. And different churches figure out different ways to do that. But it provides a way to talk about things in a way that you wouldn't do it in the pulpit. Maybe. Uh, maybe in a different context, people will hear the stuff differently. There's opportunities for dialogue and, and questions. And so you can do it that way as well. 
So let's talk a little bit about more formal processes of developing your people. This has become increasingly um, increasingly popular. Churches are creating their own biblical institutes of some sort. These are not accredited schools, right? Uh, though often they're partnering with accredited schools to teach these courses. What's that look like? Uh, have you? What are examples you've seen of how this has played out in churches? Well, there's some fantastic examples, and I think it's one of the more encouraging things about theological education or ministry preparation for the future. I think we'll see more of these things develop. Um, and there's all sorts of models. I mean, that's, I mean, frankly, from my seat to the bus, from a, the institution seat and wanting to partner with churches doing this, the variety of models kind of makes things difficult uh, <laughs> because, um, you know, there's not one sort of path that everybody's following that we can we can partner with. So people do all sorts of things. They they do things on Saturdays. They, you know, they do a, you know, Thursday night teaching time where there's teaching. And, uh, and the, the other thing that happens is um, there's sort of a mentoring and discipleship component where someone is shadowing or, uh, or uh, it sort of serves as an intern for a, for a pastor that learns sort of the day-in, day-out schedule, how to prepare a sermon, these types of things. So it happens in all sorts of different ways. I think it's a super encouraging trend and development in terms of ministry preparation. One of the things that I like about what you guys are doing here at Southeastern, you have this equip program uh, that you call it, where you partner with local churches to offer theological education at the local church level. The church, the pastors teach a certain number of courses. Uh, the seminary, you know, through online and other options can provide courses. Uh, we're partnering with Southeastern. I say we, I mean, uh, you know, at Brainerd where I pastor, and uh, we've started something called the Brainerd Institute, and uh, we use an intern process. Our interns can go through classes. Um, how have you seen that be an asset to local churches? Well, I think it provides opportunities for folks to um, get ministry training that uh, maybe time and place in life is it's just not the right time to pick up and move and go somewhere. It provides an opportunity to get theological and ministry preparation in the context of a local church. Uh, so um, you're equipping and training people for the ministry and mission and purpose of this particular local church. Um, it's not just to serve the church. It could, that particular church it could serve another church. But you're raising up leaders to advance the and to expand the, the ministry impact of that particular local church. And so to send somebody out of that context to go get training in a different context, to bring them back into the context, may not be the most effective thing to do. Um, so I think that's super helpful. Um, I think the relationships are established in the context of a local church, so that provides a, a, a community of learning that I think is really, really helpful. Um, so these things, are, I think, are really, really so sort of significant assets that institutes like you guys have started and other people have um, that you know provide people that are looking for training that frankly you just we can't we can't reproduce all of that we've got some things that we can offer that that a local church can offer but we can't reproduce all of those things yeah and I'll, one of the things that I like Keith about the process is that it gives an opportunity for people to get a theological education a formal theological theological education that might not otherwise ever get one in other yeah. words it, it increases the number of people getting formal theological educations uh, you know we've got people in our church who want to take certain courses but they're not looking to go into full-time ministry. 
They're not going to go get a full degree. They just want to be sharper believers. They want to be faithful in their, you know, in their areas of vocation, maybe as teachers or engineers or whatever the case might be, but they want to get a class on the Old Testament or a class on systematic theology or biblical theology or whatever the case might be. So to me, that's a huge value because we, I mean, at our church, we have a number of students who have packed up. We have students right now on this campus who came mm-hmm. out of our church who live here full time. Some of them actually even work here, you know, and we also have, I think I figured out the other day, 10 or 12 who are doing online or distance, you know, or some form of hybrid. I think the flexibility is helping us to equip larger numbers of people than we've ever equipped. And if you look at the enrollment numbers for, you know, at least the Baptist schools that we're a part of, I think that bears it out, right? I mean, we're at an all-time high in terms of total enrollment. Yeah, that's right. And I don't think what we don't know is... I think we can we can guess what you've just said. I don't think sure. we know for sure that the flexibility has um, impacted the enrollment numbers. We can guess that. There's a good good chance that that's the case. Sure. The flexibility may have just given people options that would have done something otherwise. Um, and still, I think there's a smaller percentage of the one offers um, than the folks that are committed to finishing, uh, you know, full education with a desire to go do something with it. So, um, yeah. So. I, I think it's a it's a great asset. I'm really thankful that we are able to provide education in a number of different uh, different platforms and opportunities. And I do think what it does though is it shares the burden, and for in some level for the student, it places a greater burden on them to make sure that they're getting the um, equipping that that they need for the ministry they feel called to. Right. Because they can be more detached from an accountability community and a learning yes. community. So yeah. I think there's some liabilities to it, but sure, I, I think there's some great opportunities. Let's talk about uh, – we've got a few more minutes left. Let's talk about theological issues that are facing the church right now and how we can help pastors respond to some of those issues. What would you say are two or, the, two or three of the most pressing contemporary theological issues that pastors and churches are having to kind of confront, address, train their people? Yeah, I think the question about um, – the the nature of scripture um, is going to it seems it seemed like for a while we sort of settled that uh, but it's going to continue to come up uh, and there are more and more questions on the horizon about the composition of the Old Testament uh, don't want to get too too nerdy about all of that but these are things that we have to continue to keep our our spade in the ground on um, to make sure that we can answer questions that folks are going to hear at the workplace, our college students are going to hear on campuses, um, you're going to hear things um, on documentaries, on the History Channel, all the rest. We've got to be able to equip our people to have confidence in the Scriptures. Um, I think um, as well, uh, the doctrine of humanity, uh, what does it mean to be human, and why is that significant? What does it mean to be male and female? Why is that significant? Um, so questions about uh, gender and all the rest, I think these are going to be fairly significant questions. And they are, th- they are ethical questions. There are moral questions. The, there are political questions at some level. But they are profoundly theological questions because the only way for us to answer some of this is if we believe that God has revealed in the Scriptures about what it means to be human at first and what second, what it means for us to be gendered uh, male and female. Um, so I think that's that's a really critical question. And I think the nature of the gospel and what the gospel is um, is going to be really critical. And I think it's going to be critical for a number of reasons. Um, I think it's going to impact 
Um, uh, whether we stay faithful to the truth of, the, of what the gospel is, its exclusivity, um, the uniqueness of Christ, uh, the, our confession of sin and receiving um, forgiveness on the atoning work. But I also think it's going to impact the conscience of the, of the church in North America um, and the way they look at their culture. Um, so if we understand the gospel to be um, a, if, uh, at its core, it is something that transforms worldviews. You know, it transforms the way people see things and see the world around them, the way they interpret things. Um, it's a story about reality. It's not just a message that you either sign your name to, you put your faith in, or don't. This is a story about reality, and it impacts all of reality. And are we discipling our people and training our people with an understanding of the gospel in this kind of way? And are we engaging the world with an understanding of the gospel this way? You know, do we understand that they have a different way of seeing reality? And it's not shaped by the, the, the incarnation. It's not shaped by the perfect life of Christ. It's not shaped by the atonement and the resurrection and how all of these things are the fulfillment of what God is doing in the world. Let's, let's back up to, in particular, humanity, how to understand humanity, because I think that's an intriguing one that I'm not so sure how many people are thinking through or at least understand how to form a rubric to think about. Why does our doctrine of humanity matter? In, in particular to specific issues that we're relating to right now. Why does it matter, and how ought we to think about humanity? Well, I mean, it matters uh, for the gender questions, transgender questions that we have. It matters on the most pressing questions in our political arena right now when it comes to the Dreamers, the DACA issue. It matters when it comes to refugees. It matters when it comes to international missions. It matters when it comes to adoption. Um, it matters when it comes to parenting. Uh, it matters when it comes to you walk out your door and you say hi to your neighbor. Who are those folks? Right. You know, are right. they imagers of, of of God? And by an imager, you mean someone who bears the image of God. Yeah, someone who God has uniquely shaped um, that's different than all of his other creatures, mm-hmm. that they're part of this human race. Um, and so they, they, they possess the image, the image of God. That means they have the capacity to relate to him in a unique way. Um, so I think when we th- start thinking about theologically who are humans, I think we start with the, this notion of image of God. Um, so, so let's let's expand on that a little bit. You and I have a book coming out in uh, November, the, the 1st of November, called Islam in North America. Um, we co-edited it. We each wrote a chapter in it. About half the chapters are written by non-Anglo former Muslims. And in part, we're writing this book because of this question. Who are – what does the doctrine of humanity mean? So one of the things we want to do with the book is equip the average church member to think biblically, theologically about, for instance, um, a Muslim who moves in next door and you're fearful that they're a terrorist. How does the doctrine of humanity shape the way you view them and therefore shape the way you – Engage them, think about them, speak with them, right? So this is a this is an easily transferable concept. Yeah. This is not just academic rhetoric. I mean, this matters. This is how I rake my yard That's tomorrow. Right. That's right. And whether or not I decide to invite that new neighbor into my home for tea, if that makes sense. Yeah. And w- let's talk a little bit about that. Let's drill down even deeper. How are some ways that we've We've missed the doctrine of humanity with respect to, for instance, a Muslim neighbor who might live, uh, live next well, door I think to one us. of the ways we miss the doctrine of humanity is we do what James tells us not to do. We're prejudiced. Okay. 
We make decisions about who is more important and who's less important. Right. And we do it based on thousands of different categories. Some of it's social, some of it's economic, some of it's um, political, some of it's cultural. I mean, there's all sorts. You name it, there are categories. Right. And we make these we make these judgments. And the Doctrine of Humanity says all of those judgments are false. Yeah. Every one of them are false. That's what the Doctrine of Humanity says, because we're all equal before God. So I think you and I would agree every person on the planet has prejudices. Yes. The definition of prejudice is to um, – preconceive an opinion of someone that's not based on reason or actual experience, right? Right, and so make a value judgment. That's right. We've yeah. made a value judgment. And generally this judgment that we make speaks to um, our belief about the value of that person mm-hmm. that we're making a judgment about. And so having a right doctrine of humanity, for instance. So, And, and remember, we're talking about pastors doing theological development with their people. So if I'm a pastor and I'm thinking about how to help my people – Think rightly about the doctrine of humanity. I may not get up in the pulpit and say, all right, I'm going to preach on the doctrine of humanity, but I am going to preach on the image of God being present in every person. Mm -hmm. And the application for that reality is that I'm gracious to my neighbors, that I believe everyone is savable, that I believe that everyone is 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 a creation of God, valued by God, and bears the mark of his image. Which, which changes my perceptions about them and does not give me the freedom to believe them to be um, evil in a way that I'm not, if that makes sense. Yep. So I would say, yes, we can believe about each other we're evil, but as long as we believe that all of us are, that, that sin wraps around all of our hearts, you know, and, and so it, it helps us to understand that they're evil, that they're not evil in a way that somehow we're not evil, if that makes sense. So what I'm trying to do is help our folks listening to this understand that framing a theological platform or creating a theological framework by which your people are developed matters. It's part yep. of our pastoral duty. And so it, it does, and I mean, I'm, I'm going to go back to what we said earlier. All this stuff does some, start with teaching, but it doesn't end there. Um, so my question would be for those who are listening is, do your people know that you care for everybody in your local church the same way? Right. Or is, right. There a, is, is there a possibility that they think that there are certain people in the church are more valuable to you because of the money they give to the church, their influence in the community, or their influence in the church, or because they have more personality um, affinity with you, they're easier for you to be around, you feel more protected around them? Or the opposite. Do you have some disdain for people because they've been yes. negative towards right. you? Because they haven't agreed with the perspectives that you've tried to institute at the church. Right. So it's, it starts with that. The other thing is, do your people see you grieve when you're, when people in your church and people in your community are hurting? Right. Do they see your compassion and your sympathy and your love demonstrated for others? Do they see you being happy for people right. when good things happen? Right. This is theology at work. That's right. You can say whatever you want to from the pulpit, right. but if you don't live in such a way that you see everybody around you as equal before God, right. then – it won't matter. What, what will happen is everybody will have their right um, statements on theological truths, but their hearts won't be formed and shaped and challenged. Right. Right. And the way that pastors shape and form in the hearts of people is when they live consistent with the gospel as much as when they sp- proclaim the gospel from the pulpit. We love to say that we love all people, but is there evidence in the way you lead and live that that you know betrays the fact that you genuinely love all people? I, I think – this leads us to, for instance, when a terrorist attack happens, um, do we are we grateful that justice is done in the in the life of a terrorist, 
but at the same time grieving the loss of a soul created in the image of God. And by that, I mean not just the people that were harmed by the terrorists, but by the terrorists themselves. Grieving the loss of that soul. I remember writing an article when Osama bin Laden was was killed by the American government. And I made the article – I made the argument in the article. In fact, it's still the most widely read thing I've ever written. I made the argument in the article that the government right was – the government of America was right to take that action. They were right to seek justice. Romans tells us, you know, they have the right to wield the sword on behalf of the people. Right. But we should – in fact, I entitled the article, Let Us Not Dance on His Grave. That we should not celebrate the demise of someone created in the image of God who was savable and God desired to be in right relationship with him. And so a a right doctrine of humanity, I feel like, helps us get at this idea where where we believe and support and celebrate justice while grieving the loss of a life, even someone who hated us and sought our demise. That's what makes us Christian. Yep. Now, and I agree with that. Um, and how when we look at someone who maybe is practicing uh, same-sex relationships or um, has some uh, practices that's confusing of gender, and I mean, let's just say there's there's a, maybe a, a bit of a repulsive or maybe even a yuck factor for some of our sensibilities on that sort of stuff. And it's communicated clearly that way. It's it's visibly evident sometimes in the way pastors preach and speak from the pulpit. Absolutely. And um, can we both say what they're doing is against God in his word and what he designed rightly for the world and speak against that and at the very same time mourn? The fact that they don't know him and their right. lives aren't in conformity with him and his will for their lives right. and desire that. And, and does the way you preach about issues like that convey more that you want them to get what's theirs or does it convey your compassion for them, right. your desire for them to know that you love them and that God loves them? as equally as, as, as you are confident that what they're doing is wrong. So this is all what we're talking about right now. It's just one part of setting a foundation for the doctrine of humanity. And then the other part is thinking rightly about who, human, who, who humans are. Right. And um, so we think about the gender issue that God created male and female. Right. Um, and the, our gender is marked um, um, physically in our bodies. Um, it's part of our um, our wiring. Um, it's displayed um, in certain dispositions and actions and behavioral characteristics. Um, it's a very complex thing uh, to say this, but we can we can say that there are differences, and and we have a, we live in a culture that's trying to eradicate those differences. How do we help our people to think clearly about those things? At the same time, realizing that we live in a world that's fallen. That's fallen, that's broken by sin, and that there are people who are genuinely confused about these things. That's right. And, 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 and acknowledging, okay, another branch of theology, homardiology, or homardiology, however you would say that, yep. the doctrine of sin, right? right. Uh, recognizing that sin is pervasive even to the DNA, even to the molecular level of humans. So when you have people in your church who are created in the image of God but who say to you physically, I feel inclined in this direction and yet you're saying it's sin, we can affirm that physically they may feel that way while it, it is still acknowledging that that doesn't mean it's right. And I think sometimes the church has struggled with that, being yes. able to acknowledge um, someone could say, well, I was born this way. I think it's possible because of the inherent nature and the, and the pervasive nature of sin for someone to believe that to be profoundly true. And at the same time for us to say, but God still says that's not what's right for you, that that's sin and it doesn't lead to flourishing in your life or in humanity's life. 
Now we're really getting deep. We are, and you know this, and this is why theology is so important, and why it's important for pastors to have a theological conscience. That's right. You know, not That's just right. that they think rightly about theology and then go to the high things theologically and parse things out carefully, but when it comes time to think about the world and to respond. They've been so formed by the truths of Scripture and by the gospel that when they they respond wisely, they respond in a way that would be like the heart of God. And, and they have the capacity to think academically, intellectually about these theological concepts, but translate them into everyday life. Right. That the, the concept of the doctrine of sin or the doctrine of humanity or the character of God or the imago Dei, that these mean something for the 12-year-old boy who's sitting listening to you preach every week means something to the 37-year-old divorcee. It means something to the woman who's had an abortion. It, it means something. These are not just vague concepts, but they're practical, everyday life. Going back to what you said at the very beginning, Keith, theology is just the Christian life lived out. Yeah. So I've got a good friend, and we, we, we get to see each other about once a year, usually in November at an academic nerdy conference. <laughs> um, a couple of years ago, we were together, we were having lunch, and we were talking about something going on in our, our field and I just asked the question, what good is theology if it doesn't hold our lives together? That's right. You know, if it, if it doesn't have the ability to transform and shape us, to live in conformity to the truth that we believe, what good is it? And I would say it's not much good at all. Theology as a purely academic exercise is a waste. Right. As a purely. As me, a purely academic. That, that's yes, my, that's absolutely. my descriptive word. As right. a purely academic exercise. All right. We've got to be done. We're already actually slightly over time. Keith, thanks so much for taking some time with us in the studio today and uh, appreciate you. I hope you'll, uh, those of you who are listening, will follow Keith on uh, social media. What is it? K.S. Whitfield. K.S. Whitfield. On Twitter. Check him out uh, that way. Follow those of us who are contributors to EST on social media. Follow EST Church as well. And uh, we hope you'll continue sending in your questions. They help guide a lot of our conversations here on EST Church. Share this episode with your friends on Twitter and Facebook and the like, and let them know that they should tune in and listen to us as well. Until next week, this is Micah Fries. You've been listening to EST, a discussion for the established church. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as well as subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Support for EST is provided by Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. The mission at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. The school is located in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and offers more than 40 different degree programs ranging from Associate of Divinity to Doctor of Philosophy. With more than 3,400 students enrolled, Southeastern trains future and current ministry leaders to lead effectively, study the Word diligently, and preach the gospel unashamedly. Learn more about Southeastern by visiting www.sebts.edu. And come check out our campus to see how you can join the Southeastern family and learn how to go to reach your community, your nation, and your world. Wherever you're going, Southeastern will help you get there.